Hi, my name is Tommy Chong, and this is my Dope History. Tommy Chong is portrayed as the typical stoner. He fits the stereotype to a T. But have you ever considered that he fits the stereotype to a T because the stereotype was spawned by the characters he created? Tommy Chong has defined the stoner ethos across multiple generations, whether it was Cheech and Chong in the 70s, his character Leo in the 90s, or any one of the many projects he is involved with today. While the stereotype fits his characters, the stereotype doesn't characterize his hard and continuous work. Tommy Chong has worn many hats in his long career. He's had the chance to rub elbows with Hollywood elites, share an elevator with Muhammad Ali, and was partially responsible for discovering the Jackson 5. But where his personal story begins might come as a surprise. Tommy Chong came from humble beginnings, beginnings that instilled a valuable work ethic. I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and life was uh, very interesting. I, 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 I was a teenager in the 50s, and so I, I was there in the beginning of uh, everything, rock and roll, you know, Elvis, uh, the Beatles, everything. I got into music real early because uh, I lived in the country and I played in a country uh, fiddle band, you know, when I was, uh, I started when I was about eight years old. And, uh, and that, that was my musical background, you know, because I was, I was never good at sports because the first couple of years of my life, I was in a hospital with pleurisy. And, and so my legs never had a chance to develop like the, like my brother's. I, I just never had the legs, but I had the everything else. You know, I had the spirit, and and so sports and that. Luckily, I wasn't that good. You know, so my dad always worked, but he was in the Second World War and he got wounded, and my mother got TB, and so we all, all of us kids, ended up in an orphanage uh, eventually. You know, and, uh, and so that was uh, I had that. Uh, you know, sort of a very interesting uh, <laughs> upbringing. You know, very interesting. Like my, I didn't see my dad till I, I guess I was four or five, and then we we became tight, but not tight from birth. Tight from oh, that's my dad. Uh, he was a gambler and a truck driver, a distant driver too. So he was always like an airplane pilot. You know, that's what he 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 was like. And and we had moments. We, we had that, and that's all you can get. We had some really beautiful moments. And then when I made it big, when I could buy him a house, that was pretty thrilling. That was pretty thrilling because I'd always, you know, I had to go to him for a lot of things. He wasn't the most uh, generous dad, you know. In fact, I got more money out of my aunt than I got out of my dad, you know. Uh, but no, my dad was a, a very cool guy. We always, we had a little joke together because when I started making it big, you know, I'd leave him some cash. He, he, he being a gambler, he, he liked to have a bundle of cash in his pocket, you know. But he wasn't—he was one of those, I guess, married, uh, quiet gamblers, you know. Uh, he would gamble, but he'd take care of the home wife and, you know, the home front first. You know, he wasn't crazy, and I, I love him for it. He, he taught me. He taught me a lot. And his bro, his brother. See, we were named after my dad, and and his brother. Now, I, my my namesake Tommy, which was my dad's uh, older brother. See, and Stan, my brother, he became my older brother. So the, the switch. But Tommy, my namesake, he wasn't that thrilled with me in the beginning. You know, I didn't meet him till I was fifteen, I think. And uh, and we'd heard about him. You know, my mom was a great storyteller. She'd tell me how my uncle, he was a confirmed bachelor. You know, he had a girlfriend, but nothing really worked out. He was a confirmed bachelor, and he taught diving. He was a gymnastic coach, too. He was just total loner, you know. And, and when I heard about him, you know, my mom would 
tell, you know, how academically gifted he was and how he taught diving and everything. So I wanted to meet him. And so my, a friend of mine, you know, we were a little bit big for our britches, you know, <laughs> he was 16 and he got his dad's car. And so we drove up to Edmonton, him and I, uh, Ronnie Nystrom and myself. And I knocked on my, my uncle's door about six in the morning because we drove all night. <laughs> and, uh, and he comes to the door all sleepy. Yeah. And I, Uncle Tommy, I'm your nephew, Tommy. He goes, yeah. <laughs> I said, well, I just wanted to come up and, and say hi. Uh, okay, hi. And I said, well, I guess better let you go back to bed. Okay. <laughs> he closed the door, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're 16-year-old kids, you know. We're, we're big enough, and so... My earliest memories is being uh, in an orphanage, you know, uh, being told what to do by strangers. And what I learned when I was in the orphanage was that uh, a smile and get next to the big guy, you know, be a friend to the big guy, you know, and that's what I did. And the big guy at the orphanage, he had a bunch of us, <laughs> like little little chicks hanging around him, you know. Because then he would keep the other kids from bullying the little guys. Uh, then as I got older, I was in Army Cadets. And uh, and I met a lot of uh, poverty kind of people, you know, uh, Native American or Canadians that, uh, you know, the only income they would have would be to go to Army Cadet camp where you got paid to be a soldier, you know. It was like being in the reserve, and uh, you learned all the tactics of war. And if you want to continue with your uh, with the military, you can go to officer school, you know. That, that's the cadet training I had. And I had about four years of that. And then I met the, the other side, you know, the hoodlums, <laughs> all the bad crowd, and then I got hooked into them. Uh, and, and that got my curiosity too, because, uh, you know, when you walk to school with girls, you know, you, I, I would be a fly on the wall. I wouldn't say anything. And I listened to these girls talk about who they thought was cute and who they thought was creepy. And, and it turned out all the bad hoodlums, they, all the girls loved the bad guys. And the ones that made them sick were the jocks. Oh, he makes me sick. <laughs> you know, and so I kind of started looking. I was like Elvis Presley, you know. Elvis was, uh, we, we grew up, um, he was a, a couple of years ahead of me, but uh, we had the same cultural uh, thing, you know, with the long hair, was a ducktail. And what we did, we copied the Pachucos. Pachucos were a Mexican gang that uh, was formed. In California, for the most part, they were the ones that never went to war. And uh, they were the ones that had the long hair and the zoot suits. And, and so when the, the war ended, the GIs came home, uh, they had went to war with these long-haired zoot suits, and, uh, who were mostly Mexican. And young and probably from, uh, you know, their barrio, their gang, gang guys, you know, they're tough as nails. And so, uh, so I started, you know, uh, when I was 15, right out of army cadets. No, still in army cadets. I started, uh, emulating the, the, the pachucos, as they were called. And, and that was so funny because when I met Cheech, we got our success from, Cheech being a, a Pachuco, basically, a lowrider, but that's what he was. He was like a gang member, a wannabe, you know. And and so that was, uh, that that's how I got my early life, you know. And um, I was always race conscious because I was, you know, born, my dad was Chinese. My mother was 20% uh, native. Uh and so right from the beginning, you know, we've always, we always had that racial uh, thing uh, growing up with it, you know, far as back as I can remember. 
And uh, the Chinese, the Chinese call it bunlukmanbao, which means half a loaf of bread. <laughs> you know, half a weight, half weight. It, it, you know, mixed race has been forever. You know, it's, it's always been there. But also the prejudice of the, the color has always been there forever, too. You know, from the beginning, I always had a social consciousness because of who I was. And I had an older brother, so I, I he, he sort of had to do the fighting for me. You know, there was a lot of uh, fighting early, you know, because of our mixed race and, uh, and you know, just the way the bigots were in Calgary, you know. Calgary, outside of Calgary, was one of the biggest, uh, ra- uh, uh, what do you call it, ho- Holocaust deniers, in, in 20 miles from Calgary. And Calgary had um, a Chinese cemetery where the Chinese were, were, you know, the immigrants, and that that's where they would be buried. And they had a Jewish cemetery, too. And so it was very uh, race conscious. And growing up in that environment, you know, uh, like I said, we started uh, a band. I got in a little bit of trouble when I was 16. Um, the charge was called joyriding, although we never did get the car started. <laughs> a friend of mine stole the car, then he, then he, it stalled near my house. And so he called me and I went down and tried to help him start the car and we got caught. And so, uh, <laughs> so I got, Anyway, I went before a, a magistrate, and uh, and it was my first time in front of a, a judge, you know, first time in trouble, and it really shook my dad, my whole family, but especially my dad, you know. Oh, and then, <laughs> pretty funny, like I said, I've always, always uh, community conscious, you know, and so I, I talked to the magistrate that sentenced me one time. I just walked in his office one day, and I, I told him, you know, there's not much for teenagers to do in calgary and and so he uh, he said well why don't you start something <laughs> that that simple you know like put it back on me and so i started a teen uh shades teen club and we got the um, the legion hall because it was a teen club we we got access to this beautiful dance hall in the middle of Calgary, right downtown. Oh God, it was it was something, and it was basically they gave it to us almost for free, you know, because we were helping the kids. But because I wasn't, um, you know, I was more socially minded and not financially aware at all, at all. We had a, a gold mine there because we had the only dance hall in Alberta, the whole province. And we had people driving down from Edmonton and uh, driving up from Lethbridge and just to be at the dance. And so the dance became so popular. And then, of course, it attracted all the rough, uh, you know, the zoot suiters at the time. And then because of the liquor laws, they made us close at, uh, a Saturday night was the night we had the dance. We had a close at 12 midnight. And so now we got three, 400 teenagers with nothing to do at 12 midnight Saturday. <laughs> so they would, you know, I mean, rumors would go out. There's a party over here. And then it'd be some girl babysitting and like 300 people would show up and trash the place. And so the so the city so the cops um, after about a month of us operating, we got called into the mayor's office, and I thought, oh, we're, you know, they're going to honor us or something. And the police were there, uh, the lawyers, uh, you know, the city lawyers, and and what it was, they got us there to tell us that we had to get out of town during the Christmas holidays shut down and get out of town well being young you know we uh, we looked at that like a plus yeah <laughs> we're going and so we went to vancouver religion was introduced to tommy early in his life at the age of eight he attended bible camp which then led to him attending sunday school not long after that he was helping with class and leading it on occasion 
Throughout his life, he never stopped pondering the concepts and practices behind religion and spirituality. This led him to personal exploration, and he has emerged from that with some insightful takes on the subject. Many of his ideologies are humorously relayed in his book, The I Chong, which he wrote while in prison. He credits that environment and the involuntary opportunity for the focus to complete his work. In this next segment, Tommy explains his early experience with the church and how that later shifted and shaped into a general life philosophy for him. I could never get enough of Sunday school when I was a a little guy because that was the only time we got dressed up. You know, that was our only, you know, wear your good clothes time because I, I grew up kind of like on a reservation. In fact, we weren't in the reservation. We were on the edge of the reservation, which was even poorer, you know. And we had outdoor plumbing, you know, the outhouse. We had uh, had to carry water in pails from a, a neighbor's pump. Um, so when you grow up like that, like a, a new pair of shoes will put you in heaven for a few months even. You know, new sneakers. Because when I grew up, we went barefoot for a couple of reasons. The sneakers were wore out, and we couldn't afford new ones because you're growing all the time. Every time you turn around, you're a different size. And so we'd go barefoot in the summer, and then we'd get our winter clothes, but not like clockwork, you know, because my dad, again, you know, being a truck driver and a gambler more than anything, you know, you never knew. He wasn't, he, he was really good. I mean, he provided a good home and everything. But there was no extra money ever anywhere. And that's why I worked all my life, you know. And, he, and I usually got a job that my friend was quitting and say, hey, listen, man, will you help me out, you know? And I got, you know, okay. And then I'd, I'd have a job. And I always had a job all my, as uh, soon as I could, as soon as I could work anywhere. And that's the kind of ethics that was my education. Everybody's got their own obstacles to climb. You know, not every mountain's the same. You know, some are very much alike, but for the most part, everything's new. That's one thing. There's no endings. There's only beginnings. You see. And so I don't really worry. See, my life was so serendipity, but I did. I taught my kids, I hope I did, but I taught them the essence of spirituality. And that's what I was taught. First thing I was taught, I was eight years old, and we're in the country and just loving the country, you know. (laughs) You know, we'd play from sunup to sunset, just outside. Come in to eat, sometimes. And sometimes have the lunch, eat while you're playing. It was such a beautiful life. And one time we were walking across the field. No, walking up a dirt road. And this car, we see, there's a car, like, a, like an old Terrence Malick movie, you know, Days of Heaven. And you see the car coming from a distance through the field, you know. And it was an old Chevy, I believe. And it was full of missionaries. And the missionary said, hey, you boys want to go to Bible camp? And, of course, I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, this sounds so cool. And my brother, yeah. He, and so they drove us back to our house, and we got permission. And then we got in the car, got our clothes, got in the car, and, and then stayed in, a, in a, a church. And they had a little apartment for, for people. And I remember seeing a flush toilet for the first time, you know, in a long time, you know. Uh, and then uh, we went to Bible camp. And it was in a bus the next day. It drove, a, you know, good, good six hours, six, eight hours. It was a long ride. But when we got there, there was, they had all the tents for of the different, uh, different groups of people. And each group or each tent, uh, they had like a missionary assigned to that tent. And the first thing they taught us to do was how to pray. We had prayed, but I'd never really been taught, you know, 
And that's what that camp was all about. And so I learned how to pray. And then the next day they would, they took us and kind of into the fields and the beautiful natural flowers. And, and we'd sit down and, and the, the missionary would read Bible stories to us, all these beautiful uh, stories for children, you know, and just gorgeous. It's so beautiful. And, uh, and with the emphasis on, on God and Love of God, and and there, I always, it was a Christian church, so they're 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 heavy into the baptizing, and uh, you know, very very. I I don't, I don't know even know what kind of domination it was, but it was all about praying and, and loving God, and I took to it. It just seemed so natural to me. It was like ordained again. And so at the end of the end of the two weeks or three weeks, whatever it was, uh, they gave out awards. And the award was really for the nicest girl and the nicest guy. And so the nicest girl award was given out. And I'm standing up there reaching for some food because it was the lunchtime. No shirt on, and, you know, tanned as could be. And the guy said, keep standing there, Tommy, because you won the nicest guy in the camp. <laughs> and that was the first award, you know, like that ever in my life. And, uh, well, you hear me, I'm still talking about it <laughs> today. And it was for being the nicest guy in camp. And then I started going to Sunday school, because that was the only reason we had to dress up back in, in the country. And I loved it. I loved Sunday school. I loved the stories. I started teaching it a little bit, you know, reading the stories to the other the kids, you know. Just actually because a Sunday school teacher wouldn't show up sometimes. And so they would take the, a kid like me to, to, to carry on. It was really more or less to keep the kids busy while the parents did the other stuff. You know, I, you know, I think you don't have to get out of Sunday school. Everything you need to know about the spiritual world is taught right there. And it should, it could end right there too. <laughs> Cause if you're like little children, man, you'll, you'll be happy. You'll be happy and you will be grateful and you will appreciate everything you got. Because there's, there's nothing like seeing the world through the eyes of God. There's when you do that, then when you go to an art gallery or, or you hear music or, or you see something beautiful or or you hear about something beautiful, you're seeing it. It's God made visible. And the thing, especially you know, I'm, be, I'm being taught now from you know my spiritual books. We go through these little moments of. Uh, of when you should talk about God, you know, uh, you know, because that a lot of people, you know, they, they don't want to talk about religion or politics. <laughs> so what else is left <laughs> that really gives you, that you really care about? <laughs> Tommy Chong has been a lifelong artist. He's a musician, an improv comic, a writer, a movie star, and much more. It's hard to pin Tommy down. He's an original. In his teens, Tommy started an underage music club. And, as a young adult, he ran a strip club. After that are the tales of working for Motown, meeting Muhammad Ali, discovering the Jackson 5, and all of this is before his award-winning comedy records with Cheech. We're not even close to the point when Up in Smoke was released yet, but in this next segment, Tommy walks us through his legendary career from teen musician to professional actor, writer, and director. The band started in Calgary. Uh, again, I was more like a backup for Elvis impersonator, and uh, it, who was also a full-blood native, a Sarsi native. And then I got into Lindy Hop, the dance, 
in the jive. And uh, that's when I met the black uh, inhabitants of Calgary. And, and the football star, uh, name is uh, Tommy Milton. He was a singer as well. And the three of us started a band called The Shades because we're all different colors. And, uh, and then it, it morphed into a, a real good rhythm and blues band. We started the first rhythm and blues band with The Shades. And because of Tommy, you know, the, the lead singer uh, and uh, star football player, we would get the records from the porters from down the States. It would bring up the 78 uh, blues record. You know, no one else in, in Canada, especially in the West, Western Canada, had that access like we had. And so our band was very special because we played, the, you know, Bo Diddley and the, around the same times as the Stones when they started, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, my life has been very, very serendipity, you know. All, 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 right now, right up, right up to, to, to this day. Because, like, starting the shades and, the, you know, realizing that, we weren't just musicians. We were like people of color that uh, that demanded respect, and we got it. Yeah, we got it. I've always been close to greatness all my life. All my life. I guess starting. I was going to say the Jackson Five, but I think Muhammad Ali came in there first. See, we were around when Muhammad Ali couldn't fight legally, you know. It was against the war, so he uh, he was given uh, speeches and talks and burning his draft card, burning people's draft card. And that's how Cheech ended up in Canada. He burned his draft card, and he, he escaped up to Canada thanks to Muhammad Ali. Well, I had an, an experience with Muhammad Ali. I'll put it that way. Now, Bobby Taylor was another one of these unslung heroes of Motown. You know, he was a little bit too crazy and never had enough hit tunes to really, you know, to become the Smokey or the Diana Ross. But he he changed music with Motown for sure, and he changed for for the Vancouver's because, but you know, we had a I had a club up in Vancouver, and, and Bobby was hired. You know, actually, first as a drummer, because we were looking for a drummer, and he said, oh, I'll play drums. So we had him playing drums and singing. And the, but his singing was so good that, you know, we ended up with the, the best drummer. See, when you got good music people, the best of the best come out, you know. And that's what happened with us. And so, so I had a dream band with the, with the, every great Canadian musician up there and a few from the States. And then we formed the Vancouver's, and Bobby was uh, the singer. But Bobby had had been to the Olympics with Muhammad Ali when he was Cassius Clay. And I think Bobby was—I'm I'm not sure—but I think Bobby somehow was in the Olympics with with uh, Muhammad or with Cassius Clay at the time. And so when Muhammad came to uh, Detroit, he called Bobby, and so Bobby said, "Hey, uh, come on over to you know." I think, yeah, I think we had the Jackson 5 at Bobby's house at the same time, if I'm not mistaken, or close to it. Because we had discovered the Jackson 5. We were playing in Chicago, and they opened for us because they won a, a contest in Gary, Indiana. So so they were opening the first time in, in, you know, in America that Michael sang on stage uh, other than school. And so we were connected. And so Bobby heard the group and saw how crazy good Michael was. And so he had the whole band, including the dad, come and stay with Bobby in his Detroit apartment until Motown, you know, would get around to auditioning him and signing. And that's what he did. And so I'm not sure if the Jackson Five were at Bobby's place at the time. It could have been because I know my first wife, Maxine, was there. And Bobby called me, he said, come on over. And so the night before, I was talking to this stripper friend of mine 
uh, we had worked together years ago in, in uh, Victoria, BC. She was a dancer and I was a guitar player. And uh, anyway, we stayed in contact. Well, anyway, she called me up. She goes, you'll never guess who I had a, had a fun with last night. And I said, who? She goes, Muhammad Ali. I said, what? She says, yeah, he was only in for the night. We had this nice thing. And I said, oh. <laughs> And her name was Lady Scarlet. And so the next day, Bobby said, come on over. You got the champs going over. You got to come over. So, so I came over there and I get on the elevator. And then Muhammad Ali, he jumps on the elevator, just the two of us. And so, and he doesn't know me. So he's kind of avoiding my look, you know. He knows that I'm looking at him, but he's looking around. And so I said, oh, Lady Scarlet says to say hi. <laughs> the look on his face, his eyes got all big. He looked at me, you know that kid, that Muhammad Ali, that cautious look when he gets the little, little big eyes. He looked at me, and then the elevator stopped, and we walked to the same apartment. And then, then Bobby introduced us to him, and he said, "Chinaman." <laughs> I was always a Chinaman. We saw the Jackson Five the very first time. Michael was a tiny little guy, so cute, so cute, and he was a little adult, you know. Uh, the, you know, I don't know. Probably still to this day, little kids mature so fast for survival, you know, because a lot of them are cooking. You know, they're cooking their own food. They're making, you know, taking themselves to school and you know just helping each other. When they're little, little bitty guys, and Michael was one of those guys. He, he was like an adult when he was a little guy, and uh, oh, could he sing and dance, and uh, yeah. And so Bobby, our our lead singer, uh, he had an apartment in uh, Detroit, and so he he told uh, the Jackson Five, "Come on, you stay at my house, and uh, we'll get you signed at Motown." So the Jackson Five. They moved in with Bobby for for a month, and it took about a month before uh, Motown finally, you know, did an audition and they realized what they had in their hands. and And so Joe Jackson of the Jackson Five, the dad, and Bobby, they they brought me the contract because I was <laughs> I was the whitest guy that they knew, you know, and I looked Jewish. You know, I used to wear horn rimmed glasses and short hair. And, and so I had that, that he looks like he knows what he's doing, you know. And, and so they brought me the contract. And of course, I said, yeah, this sounds good to me. You know, I had no idea. But I knew Motown was great because Motown had a whole uh, factory, you know, where they would put people through school, how to act on stage, how to act off stage, how to talk to people, all that good stuff, you know. Because Barry Gordy was is such a genius, you know. And so reason we were at Motown is that I wrote a song called Does Your Mama Know About Me? Again, you know, interracial thing. And uh, it became a hit. It became a hit. And uh, and that was our, that was our, the kind of our claim to fame. And we never did have a follow-up because they split up the group. This is what Motown, all, all the groups used to do. They'd find the guy, that, the, the lead singer or the songwriter, and then they'd separate him from the rest of the band, and that was it. And, and that's what happened with us. And so, the, so again, the band, the band broke up. I had other ideas because I, I, loved, I loved being a songwriter. And so then I, uh, I, I had... Uh, my girlfriend on the road with me. I had a wife and kids at home, but I also had my my girlfriend with me, musician, you know. And so, and she was pregnant. In fact, she had the baby in in Windsor, Ontario, because we got kicked out of Detroit. Uh, and so we, I decided, uh, you know, I didn't want to hang around Detroit, you know, and just be a sideman, you know, working for other groups, you know. So I, I. I told Barry Gordy, hey, oh, <laughs> and then I was going to get a green card from Motown. And so I had to miss a gig to, to get the green card. And uh, <laughs> and the road manager told me, he says, you know, 
Johnny Bristol. He said, if you leave the gig, you're fired, you know, because I told him I have to go back to Detroit to meet with immigration to get my green card. And he didn't know what a green card was, you know, Motown didn't. And so uh, I got fired. I got my green card, but I got fired. And then uh, Barry Gordy called me up to say, you're not fired, Tom. You know? And I told Barry, I told Barry, I said, no, nah, I want to stay fired. I said, <laughs> I want to become a Barry Gordy. I don't want to work for one. He says, I respect that. And he gave me a nice severance pay. And uh, I took my girlfriend and we drove to uh, California. And then eventually I had sent for my wife and uh, my kids. And they, they ended up in uh, California, too. And then. And and so I was free. Now, my whole plan was to get involved with another band. But somewhere along the line, I realized, you know, that music wasn't what, you know, that, that, that wasn't my thing. You know, thank God. Thank God. Because I've met two of the, probably the greatest guitarists in the world. Uh, Gator Lorm uh, and Lenny Bro. And both of them died penniless <laughs> in someone else's house. You know, they never even had enough. Well, they weren't put on on the earth to to make money. They were put on the earth to to play guitar like no one else ever did. And and Gay wrote the song, uh, the Cheech and Chong song. You know, Mama talking to me, trying to tell me how to live. I wrote the lyrics, but Gay Delorm wrote the music. He was such a phenomenal guitar player that, and he he learned his trade in in jail, you know, in the reform school. <laughs> That's where he learned how to play guitar, and he was just he was a guitar master, master. He played with all his fingers, you know, finger style. He was a steel guitar player for a while, and you know he could play anything, and then he picked up you know he could play Hendrix better than Hendrix seriously and uh, yeah and, and like when I was with the Vancouver so then you know I met I played with uh, Hendrix came and sat in our, our band Hendrix knew about our band uh, because uh, when, when when Bobby Taylor and I hooked up uh, everybody took notice because uh, I was a stabling force well first of all we owned the nightclub family-owned nightclub and so i could uh, do what i wanted to do with it and that's what i did with uh, we had a strip club for a while and then i turned that into a uh, improvisational comedy club which by the way i i've got uh, yeah i could see that happening again you know yeah yeah because it was oh man i went back to vancouver you know, after being with Vancouver's, I mean, being, yeah, with Bobby Taylor and uh, just changed Vancouver, you know. I put the first strip club in there and then I changed it into an improvisational comedy club. What happened when I was on the road with Bobby Taylor, uh, whenever I got a chance, I, I, I discovered uh, improvisational comedy in San Francisco when we were playing there. In fact, we were there for about a month playing at Big Al's on the, on Monday nights. And all during the week, we had time off. And so I would go down to, uh, you know, to a place called The Committee. And it was an improvisational uh, comedy group. And that's where I, I just lived in that club. <laughs> I loved it so much. It was so good. The star was the guy that ended up on being Johnny Fever on WKRP uh, in Cincinnati. Uh, Howard Hessman, he was a star. And I, I watched him perform, you know, almost for the whole month, you know. And uh, so I got I got really involved in that. You know, my, my whole life has been very serendipity. Suffering is a, another learning tool. Things happen like Cheech. He never saw snow until he really went up to Canada to get out of the draft. And he moved right to Calgary, right where I was, <laughs> where I lived. And his not-so-nice friends took him skiing. And he'd never been on a pair of skis before. 
And they took him up to the top of the mountain and they just pushed him. They said, oh, where you go? And he didn't know how to stop, didn't know how to do it. He never took one lesson, had no idea what he was doing. Ended up with a compound fracture of his leg where the bone's sticking through the, the, the skin. And put him in the hospital for months, months, you know, with the cast and the thing and everything else. But because he was there, then he he, he heard a, a record by Diana Ross uh, and it was, does your mama know about me? And Cheech was, God, that's because he was a music critic and he, he picked up the album. Who wrote that? <laughs> you know. And then he saw my name. And then years later, I met him. Or not years later, but about a year, one year later, I met Cheech. And, and she said, oh, you're the guy that wrote that. Does your mama know about me? Uh, so a lot of, lot of stuff. But, but we're learning, you see, and teach learn, you see. Uh, and, and that's what you do. You learn the hard way or the easy way. But there's no real easy way, is there? Because you don't retain, you see. Now, Cheech retained the, the, his experience enough to learn how to ski. <laughs> That's what he had to do. He had to learn how to ski, and he did. And uh, and, and you know, and and teachers, you know, his star was hooked to mine, obviously. You know, because when we when we met, it was very again serendipity. You know, it just we had a straight man that his wife found out what he was doing, <laughs> working in the club, and I, I think they were a little, you know, maybe a little religious, you know. And they, he, the wife made him quit. And so then that left an opening for Cheech. And then Cheech come in. And as soon as Cheech joined the group, everything changed, you know, because he, he brought this, uh, the intellectual into the mix, you know. You know, I've been around musicians and uh, very brilliant ones, too. I've been around a lot of brilliant people. I can't, I can't say that. But when, when I met Cheech, you know, he was, he was the, the younger version. I'm about ten years older than Cheech, and so I was the big brother. You know, I, I was the instigator. But he could do and still does so much. You know, and that's, and, and it was again. You know, it was when he walked in the door at the club. I, we were backstage, and and he came in with the most gorgeous lady. In a full mink coat, it was like something out of Hollywood. He was all dressed up, looking really snazzy, and uh, and all the girls, you know, in the in the acting troupe, you know, oh, he's cute, yeah, yeah. And so when he joined, it was it was it was an event, it was an event. And then when we got fired, my brother fired us, uh, and then Cheech and I stayed together, and we just because I saw right away, you know. I tried, we tried to put a band together, but, but we never played a note. First gig we had, we just, we just uh, did comedy. And, and it was a battle of the bands. We kind of won the battle of the bands because we were the, you know, we, the audience loved us. They, they were rock and roll dancers. They all sat down on the floor and watched their, our comedy and loved us. And so it's, and then even, even that, that night, we're driving home, and my the windshield wipers weren't working, and so we had to do everything manually. And this is Vancouver, where the rains—it's a torrential rain—and so we're taking turns leaning out the window, working the windshield wipers by hand with a coat hanger, <laughs> and then we're trying to name ourselves. You know, Richard and Tommy, nah, Marin and Chong, nah. I said, Cheech, do you have a nickname? He said, Yeah, Cheech. Cheech and Chong. Ah, that just rolled off the tongue, didn't it? Cheech and Chong, Cheech and Chong. You know, I'm doing the windshield wipers going, Cheech and Chong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'll work. More more than anything, we're doing records, which we got really at, at the end of our, our rope string. You know, we we had done uh probably Three more than we than we should have, you know. We did. Uh, I think we did ten altogether, and I think the first six for sure, or whatever. You know, they're pretty pretty solid. You know, everyone got 
nominated and won one one actually won a Grammy, but we got nominated for every album we ever put out. And so we had to make a choice between television and movies. And um, I, I I've always been a movie guy, you know. And the reason is is that uh, movies is where you one guy can can see his dream come true, you know. Uh, you can't do that that well with any other like television for sure, you know. So we got offered a big big uh, offer for television, and uh, the guy actually. Uh, it was the head of NBC, Tartikoff, uh, wanted us. And he had uh, Jimmy Comax, a uh, writer, uh, follow us around for three months. And he was going to write the whole, you know, write, a, write a, uh, a sitcom for us, which he did. But I personally, I said, no, I don't want to do television. And the reason was, is that it's a short life. You know, it's like a fruit fly. You know, if you, if you're not careful, yeah. and, and not only that, but you're totally controlled by the writers and producers in television. You know, they're they're the ones that control everything. Now, you know, not not too. You know, they're not shabby as far as talent goes. You know, uh, but I, I wanted to retain control of of the, the artisticness, and you can only do that with movies. You know, and so. Um, I was writing a, a movie with uh, with another screenwriter, and then uh, we had an offer to go back to uh, Australia for the third time, and it was like it was really getting uh, boring, you know, because every time we go anywhere, I uh, I'd have to work on a new show, you know, because you know just out of pride more than anything, you you, you can't be doing the same material each time, you know. Uh, some of it you can, but for the most part, you know, it depends on the act. But I, I kind of prided myself. We, we and we, we had just, you know, we got into the into the world of uh, live entertainment uh, after the records, and you know, the records got us in there. But but I always felt that we were more uh, suited for for our own movie because we are so unique. You know, there there was nothing like us in television. And I was right, too. So they did a television show called Chico and the Man. We had a skit that Chico and I used to do on stage. Old Man in the Park, we called it. It was the old guy and a young Chicano, uh, like a thug. And the old guy and the Chicano almost come to blows. And it's a pr pretty funny bit. But it was that one bit. And, and they wanted to do the whole show like that. So... So I, I politely passed, and, uh, and Cheech passed. You know, we both passed, and then, uh, and then Lou, you know, he he heard that I wanted to do a movie, so he started looking for a deal for us, and he got one because he, you know, he's on Malibu, and he uh, he he lives next door to you know the movie industry, and so between Lou Adler and, and his connections, you know, we got a deal with Paramount, and. Uh, we tried to have a, a, a director, Floyd Mutrix was hired, but uh, we had to pay him off. It wasn't going to work out. And then I realized, uh, you know, that Lou actually realized that uh, we needed to do like our records. You know, we I had to have free reign as far as uh, creating goes, you know. And uh, and Lou actually acted like the, uh, like the producer. And so then he then he told the or Paramount, dis, you know, they decide, somewhere decided that Lou Adler would be the director of Up in Smoke. And even though uh, Cheech and I wrote and directed the whole movie, you know, and that's the way it went. And uh, by the way, I mean, all, all the movies Cheech and Chong made was basically made the same way. So I know I know what I'm talking about. I, I see it exactly Every movie Cheech and I made, you know, together, not, not, not set, but together, where I was directing or, or had a lot to do with it, you know, like, uh, well, because everybody wrote their own part, you know, they just, we just give them an idea of what we wanted the character to be like, but we let everybody uh, do their own dialogue, 
it was a very loose script. It was an improv script, you know, improv movie, improv script. And so my favorite part was the beginning of the very beginning of Up and Smoke where, uh, I, I, you know, my, my dad is telling me off, about, you get a job by sundown or I'm shipping you up to military school with that Finkelson shit kid. <laughs> that, that's always been my favorite. And uh, and same as Cheech, Cheech, uh, you know all the all the cheap scenes that he was in. You know, where's my license? Isn't it on the bumper, man? You know, <laughs> there, there there are so many so many good uh, comedic classic scenes, and uh, and then in there was a movie. It was a pretty pretty together movie, you know, because. One thing about Cheech and Chong, you know, we, we, we so so authentic. I'm a poet too, you know, uh, not not a very organized poet uh, in, in in any sense of the word. That that's why you know people have tried to pin me down, but there's there's really no uh, no pinning <laughs> because. <laughs> You know, what am I? You know, uh, I can play. I always tell people I can play guitar, but I'm not a guitar player. I can direct a movie, but I'm not a movie director. I can act in a movie, but I'm not really an actor. I can do stand-up, but I'm not really a stand-up. You know, uh, I've gone through all the stuff that stand-up people, you know, stand-up comedians do and musicians do. I, But I, I, I never had the 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 need really to dwell on one thing uh it was, I, I was like multitasking you know but not really good at anything but good enough at a lot of things <laughs> in february of 2003 the u.s government conducted raids on businesses and homes in an operation dubbed operation pipe dream the operation involved over 2,000 officers, a $12 million budget, months of investigation, and was focused on the illegal sale of drug paraphernalia. In total, this operation ensnared 55 individuals, Tommy Chong being one of them. In an attempt to quash the glass and paraphernalia market, this politically motivated operation was conducted. Of the 55 people indicted, only one would ever spend time in jail. And that was Tommy Chong. The tactics used to obtain a guilty plea, which included a $20,000 fine, a forfeiture of another $103,000, and nine months in jail, were dubious. Despite the circumstances, Tommy looked at this as an opportunity. He believed there are many tests throughout the course of life, and this was just one of them. In his own words, he explains his time behind bars, the outlook that got him through, and how he would like to make a larger impact on the world through investments. When the government came to me, really, and told me, you know, you got a choice. If you don't plead guilty, we're going to go after your your wife and your son. And they, and they would have done that. Anyway, it was a challenge to me. You know, it was like they're threatening me with prison for for selling bongs that where you smoke your medicine. Now it's medicine, you know. So I knew I was totally right. And so uh, when when it came time that, you know, you either plead guilty or your wife and kid, you know, no problem. I'll plead guilty. And so I, I, I not only pled guilty, but at first I was always thinking uh, – that I'm not I'm too famous or people love me too much to let me go to jail. But then I realized, what am I afraid of? You know, all my friends have been in jail and they came out better shape than me. I'm a writer. I'm going to, uh, and then not only a writer, but I'm also uh, a spiritualist in the sense, you know, that I, I uh, do the I Ching. I do all these uh, spiritual books and that. And, that would be a, a perfect place for me to start my ministry, you know. And so that's what I did. And so when I was first, first couple of days I was in jail, I was given readings, uh, I Ching readings to the 
some of the inmates. And then I met all the hip guys, you know, they met me at the, the gate almost. And so I was with the elite of the prison, you know, the, the golf caddy that was in there on a bogus uh, charge, uh, a couple of uh, Reagan speechwriters, you know, that were incarcerated because he wouldn't turn in uh, Marcos. A lot of sports guys, too, that were in there, and no one knew they were in there. And so so I'm not going to blow their cover either. And so and so it was, uh, it turned out to be a, like a, a captain, what do they call them? Uh, a camp cupcake, you know, where it's, where it's quite easy, you know. And then I ended up uh, being uh, uh, in the same cubicle as Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street. And so we had a great time, you know. We, uh, he would tell me all the stories of his life. I'd sit there, or you know, we'd just crack up at, at how crazy he was. And then I helped him write his book. You know, I, I encouraged him to be to write down everything that he told me. And next thing you know, he's got a movie. <laughs> he gets a book and a movie. When I went to prison, uh, I got to the point. At first, uh, you know, of course, I didn't want to go. I was trying to stay away, stayed out of it, you know. But then when the reality hit, it was like, oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> this, is, this is going to be great. Yeah, because I'm a writer. And who better, you know, being better, and, and I'm celebrity. I'm a famous writer. And so I'm embedded with the troops, you know. I'm there. I shouldn't be there, and, you know, but I'm there for, for a definite reason. In the physical world, we're, we're always uh, in the world of opposites because you can't have one without the other. You can't have up without down. You can't have left without right. You can't have good without bad. And it's just a balance, you know. It's how you do it. If it's too much bad, it's not works, too much good, boring, you know. Looking, looking at it now, because I, I've been tested. Over, over the years, we all get tested, but I, I, I got tested a, a few times, and, um, and I passed the test. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy. A couple of times, uh, you know, especially with, with money and fame, you got to be very careful because it's so fleeting, you know. And uh, I really want to become one of the richest men in the world. I really do. Because obviously these the, the people that we have are the richest. I have no clue of what they could do with what they got. Not a clue. Not a clue. And they're getting all together. Hey, who wants to go on a spaceship ride? <laughs> come on. <laughs> come on. <laughs> you go up, you come down. And everything else you can sit in front of your television set because that's all you're doing. <laughs> so... So I, I got this feeling that, see, because I'm a celebrity, you know, so I, I've, I've gotten all that under control, see. And so what we need is someone that has ability to spend. See, having money is no big deal. Fuck, Fort Knox got money, you know, so what? It's a building, you know, that's it. But it's like having a tool and not using it. You know, so if, so if you have money, money means knowledge, because it takes money to, to say to put people in school, but the rewards are so great, because if it wasn't for people in school, we wouldn't be talking to each other on our iPads, and we wouldn't be able to phone anybody, we wouldn't be able to travel, we wouldn't be able to do anything. You see, so we so we need that knowledge. So we need schools and we need knowledge to use the money, not as, as you know, insurance against bad times, but use the money as fertilizer, you know, where you spread it around and things grow. <laughs> More money grows out of it because that's what you would get, you see. And, and so I, you know, with the movie idea plan, I've got a couple of plans that uh, they're going to come out somehow, maybe in my book, I'm not sure, or maybe in the movie that I'm doing, because I play a kind of like a homeless nut job character. <laughs>
and I'll, I'll have some of my nut uh, <laughs> ideas uh, front and center there. You know? that, that's why it kind of cracks me up when I think about what I've accomplished because it, it really wasn't me, although it was me, but it was me giving my power or giving my fears up. Just giving it up and, and telling the universe, okay, what do you want me to do? Tommy Chong remains active to this day with many more plans for the future. He's currently in the 70s show spinoff called The 90s Show, and he continues a busy schedule of public appearances. He has been navigating the legal cannabis markets and now has a CBD line of gummies, as well as the THC-based cannabis line. He continues to write, even if it's at a guitar's pace. One thing we didn't expect in the interview was to hear the plans for his next movie, which we think you will all enjoy thoroughly. I write like some people practice guitar, you know. (laughs) I collect words, and then when I write the words down, sometimes... They're more than a poem. Sometimes they end up being, you know, a couple of pages or sometimes just a, a sentence or two. But I got this affli- affliction uh, of um, of writing. I've had it all my life. And uh, and so I decided, you know, I've been writing down my thoughts, you know, and I, and, and I, I might publish a, a book, of, I call it My Phone, you know, because it's everything on my phone. And uh, some of some of it's poetry, other it's uh, just thoughts, random thoughts, and and sometimes there are starts of a or an idea for a television show or a script or or something. I, I kind of realize that thanks to the iPhone, we're all movie makers, whether we want to be or not. You know, so so now we're, we're it looks like we're going to be doing a uh, whatever happened to Cheech and Chong movie. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about it now. Cheech is, you know, Cheech is meeting with the uh, with the writers and the producers, and it looks pretty good. We're looking, we're looking at around March, I guess, March, April. Yeah, yep, yeah. I got the word. Don't cut your hair. Don't. Don't change your look, you know, get it more shabby. So, so th- yeah, that part's nice. I like that part. It's going to be uh, related to everything we've done because it's, it's you know, it's, it's now. It's whatever happened to those characters now. And so that's a big surprise that everybody's going to be uh, finding out about, you know. And uh, it's, 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 it was a, stretch you know for me to read something like that you know because i you know i've been involved in every teach and chong product you know going you know is in either writing directing you know acting but this is the first one where it's a character but it's going to be directed and written by uh movie people you know movie writers um yeah they're it's going to be crazy. It's going to be a big groundbreaker. A lot of people that have read the script, they, they see awards, you know, the time to start recognizing uh, Cheech and Chong, you know, on the, on, the, on the Oscar stage or the Emmy stage, you know. So I'm looking forward to that, you know. See, see like when I was on that 70s show, you know, I never had lived one line. And yet it seemed like everything that I said was something that I would think I would say, you know, and the character would say. And so, so, no, in the beginning, no one could write for us because we, no one knew what we were, you see. But now, now you got people studying our work and studying everything. And, and so now that's what happened. Now the writers, you know, and the directors and everybody comes in. Now they, they have in their mind uh, how they want the, you know, the next to the last act <laughs> to come out, you know, because this is, this is pretty serious, you know, uh, it's, 
probably the the last shot at a at a Cheech and Chong movie. I'm meeting with somebody, some people tomorrow about the CBD because that's really it's not only taken off, but it it helps it helps the world so much, you know. And then you know our our marijuana business, we're getting so close to going public, you know that uh, that's going to be a, that's another wow. Another big, big move, you know, be on the, the stock market and be probably, if not the one of the successful, maybe the most successful um, marijuana companies uh, to come out of this legalization because we got the name and the history. We got it all. We got the product. We got everything. We're selling right now. These, these gummies are legal. You can buy these anywhere, and and they're because they're CBD, they're a hemp product, but they're they're three and a half percent THC in every one of these drops, and it will make you talk until you get tired of yapping. <laughs> It'll make you eat stuff the dog won't eat. So 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 it's working. <laughs> Tommy Chong has been a true gift to the legion of stoners out here in the world looking for a little bit of respect. He is an accomplished individual who has never shied away from his cannabis use or love of the plant. Tommy has managed to stay relevant, stay active, and stay groovy. It was an honor speaking with and listening to Mr. Chong. We hope you feel the same way too. Thank you for supporting Season 1 of Dope History. We will be back with Season 2 this summer, but in the meantime, you can replay all of the episodes from Season 1 at dopehistory.com or on your favorite streaming platform.